This podcast is proud to be sponsored by DVD Netflix. Hey, this is Jen Johans at filmintuition.com and filmintuition on social media and letterboxd. And this is Watch with Jen. Welcome to Season 4, Episode 31 on Brian De Palma. Before we get into today's conversation, I'd like to give a big thank you to my friend Peter Avellino, who you've heard on this podcast. Peter was good enough to voice Brian De Palma for us. You'll hear certain excerpts from interviews that I found in my research, which were included in the University Press of Mississippi book, Brian De Palma Interviews, which is part of their fabulous Conversations with Filmmakers series. So whenever you hear a male voice talking, that is Peter Avellino as Brian De Palma. Today, I am honored to welcome a dynamic duo of acclaimed best-selling crime writers to the podcast, two women who both won the Edgar and numerous other awards. Additionally, good friends who've also collaborated on the graphic novel, Normandy Gold. It's the wonderful Megan Abbott and Allison Galen, author of such must-reads as Dare Me, The Turnout, and Give Me Your Hand. Megan Abbott's latest, Beware the Woman, is a modern gothic nightmare you won't be able to put down. Allison Galen is the author of such gripping novels as If I Die Tonight, Never Look Back, and The Collective. And her latest title is a brand new Sonny Randall novel, Robert B. Parker's Bad Influence. Ladies, it is such a thrill to have you both here together. So how are you doing and how has this summer of book touring been for you both? Has, have you survived, Megan? I'd like to know, yeah. actually. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad to be in one place now. And yeah, um, uh, yes, it, it all seems like a blur now, but I'm so glad to be back and at home and, and writing and watching movies again. <laughs> it's a big adjustment after, you know, doing most of the events on Zoom and everything that just, you know, have to to jump back into that again. And you had a really extensive tour. So, you know, I... Uh, my hat's off to you. <laughs> well, luckily, I had, you know, got to see some friends, including Jen, who uh, that was awesome. Yeah, so fun to get to see people on the road to sort of comfort you in the midst of all that. <laughs> exactly. And I met Jen on one of my stops on my yes. tour. So Shout it's... out to Poison Pen Bookstore hey. in Scottsdale. Yes. Absolutely. <laughs> yes. No, it is so good to see you. I, I loved following your adventures on social media. Megan, you did this uh, really funny thread that you had going. Uh, every hotel is a haunted hotel or something. And you would take pictures of the spooky hallways <laughs> and uh, some of the rooms you were staying in. And that was really fun. And I loved seeing the different events that you guys were at, the photos you posted, Allison. And some of your adventures. So was there anything particularly memorable? Any good stories you want to share? Oh, I mean, for my tour, it was just basically go to the hottest places in the country. Yeah. And just <laughs> and then and then come home and realize that it's not as hot in, in New York as I thought it was. <laughs> um, but it was but it's funny because some of the carpeting that Megan that you were posting with the haunted hotels I recognized because I was staying in, in the same place 
And I know it does. They do look haunted. It's very, uh, very sort of shining esque. A lot of the, uh, a lot of the photographs that you took. And there's no way every hotel isn't haunted. You know, and <laughs> you know, have stayed there over the years and have therefore died there. Is I mean, you do the math. <laughs> yes, that's true. There's got to be just odds are there's at least oh, one yes. roaming exactly. the hall. Exactly. <laughs> Yes, it, it would make a good Brian De Palma movie, essentially. Yes. I mean, look at us tie it all together. Yeah. That's an excellent transition. <laughs> well, I was so excited. I know that you are a fan, Megan, and it was great to meet you. And we kind of got on Brian De Palma and you were like, don't tell Megan, but I got her a shirt that's tied in with Brian De Palma and she should be on it with us. And Oh, yeah, uh, I should have worn that one today. Yeah. <laughs> okay. yeah. It was yeah. his credit for blowout with a needle, just it's, a, it's a Brian De Palma film. Yeah, that would have been on point. <laughs> I'll, I'll wear it the day this posts. You post the podcast. So we'll okay. have it in honor. All right. Of- you can tie it in. But you are wearing, I mean, this is going to be an audio podcast. I usually use a screenshot. You are wearing a Fatal Attraction shirt. So, yes. you know, extra credit. That was almost a Brian De Palma movie. He almost directed two different Adrian lines. Also, Flashdance, which is crazy to think about what that would have looked like. Yeah. I had no idea. That's incredible. Flashdance. Yeah. Brian De Palma's Flashdance. Yeah. Fatal Attraction, I can see. Flashdance, yes. suffer. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Suddenly the dancer is trying to outrun a serial killer or something. And yeah, we have these long split diopters in the club. And yes, a lot of looking at her through windows. Yes. (laughs) Frames within frames. Yes. And when we were talking about, yeah, movies to choose uh, for this, I mean, we like so many of his movies and it was really hard to narrow down. This might be a series. We don't know. But what is it um, primarily? Do you guys remember the first Brian De Palma movie that you saw and loved or what it was that first drew you to him as a filmmaker and your fandom of him? Well, I, I try to remember what the first one was. I suspect it was just to kill. The, uh, I was too young when it came out, but I, I suspect when it showed up on cable a few years later and terrified me. But already I remember when it came out in my elementary school that somebody had um, let their daughters my age see it at age nine. It was like a much disgust because there already was this aura around it that it was so terrifying and violent um, that uh, how could anyone (laughs) take a child to see it? So of course that made me dying to see it. And you know, I could only wait for that moment when, when it would show up on cable and I could wait till, you know, (laughs) my parents were not around and, and, and get to see it. So I, I suspect it was that one um and that definitely felt very forbidden um it, and um there's something even then i think that felt so different and exhilarating about the style i wouldn't have known to name it then but yeah. no one's no one's movies like brian de palma's movies no one's 
Mm-mm. Yeah, there's a there's a dreamlike or a nightmare like quality to all those movies. Like you could there Brian De Palma movies are always movies that I actually have had nightmares about. You know, they're I think because they're so visual and they're so focused on the visual. But um Dressed to Kill is a great example. I mean, Michael Caine like stalking um Angie Dickinson, like oh. when you see him him in the back of the frame walking behind her, or even just you know, the scene in the elevator when when he comes in, that's that's a scene right out of a nightmare right there yeah i think about that every time i walk into an elevator with one of those mirrors you know every time every time (laughs) absolutely you know and and everything i mean uh, the the other movies that you know we've been talking about there are these images that just stick in your mind um i just watched blowout again recently um i that's that might be my favorite. It's one of my favorites. Mm-hmm. I, the three we're talking about are probably my favorite. Um, but that Nancy Allen in front of the American flag getting oh my god! And I mean, my uh, visually, by the way, Vilma Sigmund cinematography, like just every frame you want to have in a poster. But there's so much of a nightmarish quality to that movie too. You know? Yeah. yeah. Yes, and I I remember I I really got obsessed with him when I was in graduate school, and I wrote this extensive paper in my gender theory class about um, uh, <laughs> the beginning of my long long career, uh, claiming that he's the most feminist male filmmaker in the history of cinema, which I stand by. <laughs> but they're they're movies about film too. Uh, but I do think there's something. Uh, uh, uniquely uh, incisive about the experience of being a woman that he recognizes as a man um, and that understands about the the, ma- the male power of the gaze, the male power to um, try to control women. And mm-hmm. I think it's just, just the thing that got him so much heat, particularly with Body Devil, which oh we're going to yeah. To me, it's always completely missing the point that that is exactly what he's he's talking about. He's, you know, that about the way that violence towards women operates. Um, and so so I, I know Elsa and I, I'm mm. preaching to the choir here. We've had so many arguments with with especially women we know <laughs> <laughs> about um, what the movies are doing in regard to the gender politics. It's really yes. true. Yeah, we saw Body Double together actually, and um, for the first time in a long time. But we saw it on a big screen. We went to Bam. Oh, wow, we saw it was fantastic on a big screen. Um, but yeah, it's the you know all of these movies. What's so interesting with the Brian De Palma movie, like Body Double, like Blowout. If you look at it from the man's point of view, it says one thing. But if you look at it from the woman's point of view, it says another thing entirely Mm -hmm. so if you're looking at body double from holly body's point of view it's like all about the sort of commodification of women and and you know and absolutely and the women are always the smartest people in his movies uh and they'll often pay the price for that but Mm -hmm. i think that's a perfect example she's you know the um you could we'll talk about it but the, the protagonist of body double maybe the most um um 
sort of uh, insipid. <laughs> 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 yeah, he's so weak and pathetic. And uh, um, and when when Melanie Griffith enters the movie, it it you know it's just you you just smile the moment you see her because she's so smart and clever and funny and she sees through everything and and yeah is is a delight. So yes, yeah, absolutely. He's utterly powerless, really. You know, I mean, like just plagued by claustrophobia it's like literally unable to move you know (laughs) and I think that's what so much really all three of the movies we'll talk about today are about male impotence and and how dangerous that is to women uh absolutely yeah 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 it's it's really really clear in blowout I think um if if you look at the movie from John Travolta's point of view, it, yes. I'm, I'm just going to say actors' names because it's hard to remember. Yeah, no, I can't and, remember. Yeah, I can't remember them. And then if you look at it from Nancy Allen's point of view, it's a completely different movie, and it's so much darker, especially the ending of mm-hmm. it. You know, it's like her. I mean, spoiler alert, but uh, her last scream is you know commodified and put into this crappy movie that he's doing and you know she's been sort of commodified and uh throughout the entire movie by and used by various men um who completely don't care about literally about her own life well-being you know yeah Yeah. i like that you brought up that shot against the american flag i know we'll go into it when we talk more about uh blowout but when I was doing research and reading old interviews, there was one with, of course, like his biggest uh, fan, uh, Quentin Tarantino. Blowout is one of his top three movies, his Desert Island movies. And when he was talking about it. That's not holding it against Brian De Palma, though. <laughs> no, not at all. But he was saying that that shot, he thinks, yes. is one of the most heartbreaking shots in film. Um, because it's doing so much at the same time simultaneously. And um, so I I loved thinking about that. Also, I read an interview with De Palma where he was saying, interestingly enough, because somebody said, you know, like, would you go see your movies? And he said, no, I don't know why people see my movies. I don't like to be scared. It's like buying a ticket to a roller coaster. Why are we doing this? Like, why would you want to be scared? And so it, it's very interesting. I think he's working out some of those. It is, but fears. I think he's often disingenuous in his interview. Oh, yes. He yeah. loves to contradict himself <laughs> and tease and right. also figure out the people that he's interviewing. There's some really good ones in the Brian De Palma interviews book. We're like halfway through. Uh, somebody even said, why are you looking at me like that? It's a really famous interview after Body Double. And, uh, you know, he's like, well, once you start to get to know someone, you figure out how they think. And so he was kind of playing with them. And yeah, so it's always interesting. Yeah, it is. I mean, I think in the documentary about him that Noah Baumbach uh, and Jay Kevin made, you see how he, you know, he's a difficult person to to nail down on uh, because he is sort of. I think it's very his interviews are very interactive. Yeah. And he's sort of gaming them. He's a very cerebral filmmaker um far more so than his peers of that generation uh scorsese or coppola or or friedkin you know uh and i think it's part of what i mean maybe this is a good segue to start to talk about but his, the 
other than the problem, like people that think he he revels in violence against women, the other bad rap is that he just rips off other filmmakers, specifically Hitchcock. And mm-hmm. I, I think that's the even more specious. Uh, it's sort of a not understanding how cinema operates or art for that matter, that uh, that he's actually doing something with his the movies he admires. And mm-hmm. they're, they're riffs on these vertigo and rear window and 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 they're often critiques of elements of those movies and spinning them out and i think um i think that sort of is it i think it's maybe why movie lovers love his movies so much because yeah. the pleasure of it is is seeing him play i mean i guess the extreme example is raising cane where there's like so many if they're embedded so deep like oh uh, yeah you know movie upon movie and it's like beeping tom and it's psycho and it's you know like all like you know layered on top of each other almost yeah. to the and he's the person who, who really who really um first person and probably more than anybody else understands how scary John Lithgow could be. <laughs> yeah. He does. Right. He when said, I don't know why people like just that. think, oh, sweet yeah. guy, you know, he gets it. You know? yes. Yeah. And I love mm. what you were saying, Megan. It's kind of, um, it's more than like a cheap parlor trick. Like he's using stuff. He's, and sometimes you don't even know where you're drawing from. Sometimes yeah. that's very deliberate, but you know, also you read some very surface level um, analysis of his work and they're like, yeah, it's all Hitchcock. And it's like people were doing split screens like Lois Weber and like at the beginning of making movies. And, you know, so there's more going on here than than just Hitchcock. Films with endless jabber make me sleepy. How you deal with a genre in America after you've seen a lot of European movies is to make it slower than it seems like an Antonioni. So instead of, say, just making a bank robber movie, you're making a comment on American society because everybody moves so slowly. Directors who do this seem to me to be embarrassed by the genre they are working in. They really don't want to be known for making detective pictures. They feel they are important directors and they can't be accused of making, say, a Raymond Chandler movie. If you are making genre movies, you cannot refuse to shoot the obligatory scenes. How do we get from A to B to C to D? But some directors feel that they are just boring parts because they are plot. And who wants to hear about that? Let's get on with the stylistic business. It's great to be a stylist, and I really like that. But on the other hand, you cannot refuse to pay attention to the conventions you are working with. Make a new form and be Fellini, but then don't try to be Don Siegel. I strongly believe there are reasons for genre forms, and there are reasons that make them work. And if you ignore all the tenets of the form, you are going to have something else which isn't going to be that genre. But if you are going to avoid telling stories, then you would better come up with another way to make a movie last 90 minutes because it becomes difficult any other way. Granted, there are some genius directors who can get away with it, but by and large, it makes me angry to see a good major director subordinate the content of an expository scene to style so that you can't tell what's going on and who's doing what to whom. I think that's a really good probably place to begin with Sisters, which, you know, does overlap a lot with Hitchcock because he's using um, the same composer. So I'm just going to let you take it away. Megan, you were the one that uh, chose Sisters and it was newer to me. I watched it, I think, for the first time a year or two ago. And I know it was new to Allison. So I'd love to hear how long you were a fan. Yeah, I, I I'm so glad that this was the occasion, Elsa, for you to watch it because I knew that you would. I, I want to hear your first response to it, but this has always been my stealth 
secret favorite. I think it's a scary. I mean, to me, it's the scariest movie, and that's saying a lot because it's a movie so <laughs> really scary. scary. Yeah, it's it's so chilling, and to me, it sort of for you know it's you know there's there's rear window in it obviously there's a lot it's very much a movie about looking um mm-hmm. and but it's also so much a movie this we establish a theme that he will pursue through many movies about how women are punished for looking um yes and because you have a you know and the women published professionally because you have this reporter played by jennifer salt who mm-hmm. um no one believes her which is a you know like a, a classic, classic. experience of yes. people not believing you and then you have the uh, um the psychosexual version of that with margot kidder's characters um these twins and then this is the first instance too of the doubling that we will see throughout brian palma's career but this notion that that you know that 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 women um have to be able to perform these two selves, the sort of per- perfect, pleasing, uh, uh, wanting to please men, uh, making them happy version, and and then there there is it comes out in, in this case with her twin who is um, has desires, has anger, has all these feelings, and and is therefore punished. So I think I think seeing it early on and being terrified. I think I saw this one as a kid originally, but then returned to it as a in my twenties. Uh, it just always struck me as this first stroke of genius and i i'm dying to hear allison how how it struck for you yeah i i found it terrifying and i just recently watched it for the first time i i didn't know about it um yeah i i absolutely agree um there's you know and of course like all of his films too there's this whole element of voyeurism and you know and and look you know it starts out uh, it, t- the interesting thing to me is that all three of the movies that we saw start out with this artificial scene. And so this one starts out with yeah. this really weird TV show <laughs> where, <laughs> where Margo, like, like the real TV show, right? It's like a yeah, it's it's like camera. Like a camera, camera, which is a voyeuristic, but it's, yeah, it's very sexual candid camera where um, Margot Kidder's, Margot Kidder's character, who's this actress is taking off her, clothes she's blind yeah in front of her poor hapless handsome co-star i don't i don't know the name of the actor he was really good um anyway Mm -hmm. yeah um so she's so they you know they they want to see how he'll react to um to her you know nearby him you know taking her clothes off and and he's a gentleman and he, but it's but it's a uh, like a candid camera type of a show and and the other you know movies start out with you know blowout starts out with a scene from a slasher movie and a fake mm-hmm. slasher movie and then um uh body starts out with a scene from a vampire movie it's mm-hmm. they all start out with this artificiality and i feel like a lot of his movies are about you know you know beyond the the very a lot of the prevalent themes he has i mean you can tell that he loves watching movies and it's about the experience of sort of watching and 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 watching the 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 relationship between an audience and and a film you know i Um, love yeah the way that it kind of anticipates uh dress to kill a little bit in that you know he endears us kind of like with psycho he endears us to our main character we think we're watching one movie and then all of a sudden oh jennifer salt what is that character like we see what from the neighbor's perspective and i thought it was really cool when i was reading about it 
And he said how he'll think up these ideas or these dreams of scenes. And uh, this might have begun with someone scrawling the word help in their own blood on a window, but he wasn't sure how we get there. And I love this idea of putting it together like that. Yeah, I mean, it's, it is sort of, I mean, I guess his critics would say it's a direct, direct lift from Psycho, which is <laughs> his protagonist. But but to me, he's doing something so interesting. Yeah. With, um, and that is latent in Psycho, which mm-hmm. is about, you know, in that case, Janet Lee's character being punished for her desire. And then yep. Miles' character trying to investigate and mm-hmm. um, and just like we have with the Jennifer Salt reporter character. But I think what, you know, he's do, doing it at a very different stage in feminism. And, and I think he can go so much further with it. Um, I, I read that he was inspired by this photograph of these real life yes. twins in Russia and this picture that he's, he actually copies in the movie of the two of them where one looks so sort of beautiful and trying to please the camera. And then the other one, as we see in the movie, has this sort of disturbed look of you know, not wanting to be, um, mm-hmm. uh, but under this sort of gaze, I mean, there's sort of echoes of freaks, Todd Browning's freaks. Yes, I was going to say that. Yep. Which I think is, yeah. And and that the, you know, in some ways he's sort of suggesting that to to, to be a, a woman is is to be a freak, you know, that you have to uh, um, perform for the leering gazes of of these men. And, and that science is not going to help you. It's actually going to imprison you as we have, you know, um, William Finley uh, soon to do phantom of paradise is right after this isn't it so as to uh um to uh play this um you know this controlling scientist who mm-hmm. seeks to who, who winds up controlling both of the women at that at the one point you know in that movie which is a really terrifying scene there's so much great dream dreamlike scenes in that movie too that are really i mean genuinely frightening you know yeah um, I, and Marco Kidder is so good. Um, this is really one of her best parts, and you get to see what she's capable of. When the when the twin first emerges, that's one of the scariest moments I oh think I might have ever seen in a movie. I mean, yes. every time I see it, I still, I still jump. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Also, yes. she's so expressive a face and she she looks so different as as her twin yeah. uh, and it's quite a feat of of performance yeah yeah for me i think the most terrifying things about it was exactly what you pointed out megan of not being believed as a woman or authority figures kind of manipulating you because I've told the story on the podcast, but when I was like 10 or 11 coming home from school, from school bus, some 20 something year old guys were like in a truck trying to get me in. And I ran home. I told my parents, they called the police and the guy who showed up just told my dad, well, that's how girls are. I'm sure she knew them. And it's like like 11 year olds hang out with 20 some year old guys. And um, so that was my first experience with that. But then also the idea Uh, So Jennifer Salt isn't believed. And then later in the same movie, when she follows that great whole sequence, you know, following the couch and and she goes to um, the institution and then she's like, call the police, like, check my ID, do this stuff. And they're, oh, no. And they're making, you know, they're like gaslighting her or, you know, it's fine. And that's just as a woman, like the most terrifying Uh, taking away your agency, something out of Beware the Woman or something kind of gothic. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, exactly. And it that's why I think the ending is so haunting and you feel like something's been taken away from yeah. you by, by taking her character away in that fashion. And you feel so defeated because at, at that point, finally, you have the police that believe her, but they can't get her to um to talk and it's just i mean if that if that's not an expression of the complications of being a woman i don't know what is um Mm -hmm. and and just really sort of just a chilling chilling experience to you know it I think it really, I think sort of yeah, predicts everything to come and also shows his visual skill, which yeah. is so stylish a movie. And those black and white sequences are really some of the scariest things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, both in the original, you know, sort of doc, found documentary footage, but then also how it's inserted into her dream. And, the, and that whole oh, dream yes. scene was so well done uh, when she's being put under and, and she's in the, um, when she and Margot Kidder are both in the room and they're both having, you know, basically having their minds taken away from them by this controlling scientist. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, what a, what a, and it, oh, and it's such a bleak ending, really, you know, <laughs> um, really is. But it is, it's another case of one of those movies where it's like, well, you know, the male audience might have been looking at it through the point of view of the of the private eye or or whomever, you know, or the or the man who gets killed early on. But if you're looking at it, it's a very female-centric movie. And it yeah. really it really deals with um the 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 climate at the time and, and sadly now of not being believed in the same way a man would be believed. Right. Mm-hmm. And similarly, I do think, you know, the uh, Lyle Wilson, right, is the name of that actor, the, uh, who's, a, who's, you know, a black character. And that that's highlighted yes. the fact that he experiences in a, such a short time. So yes. much. That was something it, it really speaks to De Palma's early movies, which he, he dealt. He was, you know, a much more explicitly political filmmaker when he started and, and, and the racial politics of the era really yeah. interested him. And I think there's something very that he's doing that's very clever with um with this black male experiencing similar things to the things that women experience like a different mm-hmm. version of that where they're he's, where he's not being believed exactly and he's being yeah. exoticized you know they give him um that that gift certificate to the african room and yes, uh, yes. Uh, and and there's just a um it's sort of there's something really delicate I think he's doing with 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 race um, in regard to the the female characters that kind of yokes them together. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Yeah. And, and the women are French. And so they're just kind of both out of place in this area. You get that. But yeah, I think part of the reason it's so scary that the scene on the couch when, when we first see her is because, you know, it's such a beautiful thing he's doing. He's going in, he's getting a birthday cake for this woman yeah. he just met and yes. spent the night with, and he's getting her prescription and he's so sensitive and oh my gosh. Yes, absolutely. Yes. Yes. Yeah, was, scared just thinking of it. <laughs> yes. it. It just reminds me what you were saying, Jen, about him, it's these techniques that really go back to silent film. And so much of those dream sequence and the, the newsreel footage really use a lot of silent film techniques. Um, yeah. And that, um, and it, like also then in the context of this very modern movie, give it this uncanny, uh, eerie quality that I think he, uh, he uses to such a great effect. Um, 
And and yes, as Allison says, it's a bleak, bleak ending, but not nearly as bleak as the next one we were going to talk about. No, not at all. I usually show the underbelly of the kind of upside of everybody else because I myself have had such a struggle and tried desperately to get unique conceptions done on the screen and fought tooth and nail all the way through only to see them badly received or not opened at all and forgotten. I've yet to be recognized for what my talent is. I have a certain coterie of people, but I have yet to break through in any kind of big way. Even that, though, can be phony. Worse than being dead is being hot, because all these people come out of the woodwork and fall all over you. That is dreadful. I'm very suspicious of that. Everything I do and feel is in my movies. I could leave this apartment tomorrow and never think about it twice. There's no personal part of me here. My view of the world is ironic, bitter, acid, but basically funny, too. I'm a real gallows humorist. I see something funny in the most grim circumstances, like the line in Phantom of the Paradise about coast-to-coast assassinations as real entertainment, and it's true. The Kennedy assassination is probably the most entertaining thing I ever saw. It riveted me, held me emotionally, and I watched the television set for days and days, and that is entertainment on a scale that no one could ever come up with. That's what I think the rock world is all about. A world of people killing themselves, consuming themselves in front of you. And you're sitting there applauding. Jesus, do it better. Do it bigger. I think uh, my first favorite, and it's still the one I watch the most, is Untouchables. I'm thinking, you know, probably the first thing I ever saw that he did would have been the Dancing in the Dark video for Bruce Springsteen with Courtney Cox. I remember seeing that. Yeah. And then I think it would have been untouchables because I'm was like a really weird kid and so like my first huge crush was on Robert De Niro because of Midnight Run which Megan knows about and um so I think I probably saw untouchables pretty young but when you say like his best movie it might possibly be blowout I think so I do remember seeing it in the early 90s on television and then every time I've revisited it it just gets stronger and stronger so what is your uh, relationship to it you guys I don't remember the first time I I, I saw it on video but yeah. you know um the I I've I it's probably my it's definitely probably I mean, I love a lot of Ryan Paul, but it might be my favorite um, it, because so I, I just feel like it's just perfect. There's so many, yeah. you know, I, and then again, watching it recently, as you were saying, it really just holds up beautifully. Mm-hmm. And it's so interesting because it came out after a lot of these sort of 70s conspiracy thrillers, um, yeah. 81, I think. But um, I know Megan and I are big 70s conspiracy thriller fans and that's why why we wrote this comic normandy gold um but it it takes that but it's got this really distinct different slant on the 70s instead of the lone man you know running from the from the powers that be it's you know nancy allen emerges as this pretty incredible she's amazing in this yeah really really great i i actually think it's like the best performance definitely that i've ever seen by john travolta or nancy allen like i Mm -hmm. just both such wonderfully natural performances yeah and so and she's so endearing and your heart just breaks for her because she's just used by man after man after man you know whether it's uh the photographer dennis franz's photographer 
who is trying to, um, you know, exploit her so he can blackmail people to the people that she is, you know, Mm -hmm. being exploited with, to even, you know, John Travolta, who's, who's a really good guy, but he's trying to make up for a crime of his own in the past by saving her. And ultimately he ends up exploiting her in the worst possible way in death. I don't think he's that good a guy. I mean, he's really the worst because using her to prove he's right. uh, Yeah. But but you don't really know that until the end, until that last moment. That's why it's so like, it's, it's just so different viewing that movie as a man and as a woman, I think, you know, if you're, or, or viewing it from the two different points of view, but yeah, you think, She's the one who's risking everything. Yeah. 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 Yes, exactly. It's like that movie also makes me want to scream at the screen so many times. Like, (laughs) what is your problem? Call this guy. Why are you doing this? What is, you know? Yeah. I think one of the reasons I've always loved it so much is it is sort of the merging of his political interests with his filmic interests because it is also about movie making foremost. Because, yes. in this tradition of blowout it's you know like which it's like not hiding its connection to it uh and what's that de palma's favorite uh famous quote the camera lies 24 times a sec a minute mm-hmm. you know it's, uh, um it's you know it's really you know and what the filmmaker does and how the filmmaker uh has this sort of cheap power which is represented through jack through john travolta's character mm-hmm. and and that that's that becomes the most important thing and i think um it's it's fascinating that he's casting his wife in this part and then uh she's at the she's the victim of this um someone who's representing the filmmaker um but yeah, yeah and to cast it in this chappaquiddick like story uh mm-hmm. and and his sort of very noir belief that these institutions are inherently corrupt and it's a fallen world and there's no there, you can't beat it you know i mean that's really what it's saying and that's what the really the ending is there's no beating in it and and you you cost that you cost this one this wonderful woman her life because you didn't get it that you can't Mm -hmm. win um so yeah i feel the same way i think it's his best film i mean sometimes my my favorites rotate but i think it's his best um yeah so many giddy pleasures in some of the other ones but this one feels like you're seeing all his powers in full in their full glory yeah and i was reading like he didn't necessarily want to work with her again because they had just done dress to kill and also she was in home movies and so she'd played a hooker twice in his work and so he, he didn't want to like he wanted her to have other parts and also for the marriage you know maybe not work together but it was john travolta who's like read it knew they had good chemistry and carrie and just yes. said you know it should be nancy and i think it is a tremendous performance by her. Um, she has so much warmth and humanity. And when she's not on the screen, it's a different movie. It's interesting this weekend, yesterday, I talked to your friend Sean Cosby about uh, Alan J. Pakula films. And so, you know, I was reading and doing research and watching. Uh, we didn't talk about the Parallax View, but I rewatched that anyway. We did Clute and so it was interesting to see these two people working at the same time, these conspiracy theory, theory films and their attitudes on also just sex and violence and how they're, um, you know, more interested in the psychology versus uh, De Palma, who wants to show it and be more visceral. 
So it was really interesting to watch these kind of in the same little span to see uh, people who came of age, saw the Vietnam War playing out on television, experienced the Kennedy assassination and Watergate and what they wound up doing. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's so funny that you say that because I just saw they had this new, maybe you've already seen it, Jen, this new uh, restoration of Winter Kill. Speaking of conspiracy. Oh, yes. Adam Neiman recommended that to me last year. Yeah. So it's on, it's at Film Forum now. And, uh, you know, that's, you know, almost right. It's, I think, same year as roughly. I mean, it was, its release date is complicated by its production history problem. The fact that they ran out of money and et cetera. But, but it was made right around this time. And, um, and it just struck me watching it. It's so much more, um, which most of these, um, clue aside, conspiracy stories, tend to be very male centered and yes. um and i think one of the things i love about blowout is that i mean was pauline kale love famously loved the movie right and she, i she love her that, essay uh, on it oh my yes. god and yes and she says that, that nancy allen is the soul of the movie yes and, you know and mm-hmm. i think she's right and the movie's so so much richer because of it and that nancy allen i think is like one of the great performances of all time in Dress to Kill. But the fact oh, that she yes. that and this, it shows her, you know, she never got any credit for her range. But mm-hmm. they're, they're, I mean, they're both lovable, actually, as opposed to her character in Carrie. But, right. yeah. <laughs> but I just, uh, I think, uh, you know, she's just, uh, it just, the movie changes under her hair. And, and the chemistry is exactly that. I mean, I think, mm-hmm. that, yeah, I agree with you, Jen, that Travolta is never better than in this movie, too. So mm-hmm. I think it, it individualizes the, the paranoid thriller in a way that you don't often see, where it feels very intimate, despite all the spectacle and the split diopters and the, the yeah. way every frame is so packed and, and so seedy. <laughs> You know, and it's not as cold as like a film I love too, The Conversation, which this gets compared to a lot. Like even the the shot around, uh, you know, it's supposed to be like a a reel of tape, essentially, Mm -hmm. in Travolta when they keep going around and around. Kind of reminds me of the end of The Conversation, but it's a totally different thing. We feel like really involved with these people and you're never really involved with Harry Call. I mean, you're there, but you're held at a distance on purpose because he doesn't let people in. Yes. Yeah. So really, that's what I was going to say is it's like it's De Palma's take on the conspiracy thriller. And as a result, it's like it's much more character driven um, than and I love the 70s conspiracy thrillers. I love that feeling, the paranoia and everything else. But um, but it's it's so much about um, the 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 relationship, you know, that's sort of at the heart of it and, and how it turns and how it's. It's just definitely, I don't know. There's just it's 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 definitely more character driven and and yeah yeah. And just striking you as you say that, Allison. I think that's right. Uh, you know, usually the character kind of recedes in a conspiracy story, and here also I do think more than most weaves in the gendered element because it's you know that women are so disposable in these movies because that's part of it is that men wield all the power, men on high, men in the power quarters, you know. Uh, and that um, this is something that Alice and I wrote about a lot in in our graphic novel, but that, um, but I think his choosing to focus on that woman instead, and the man who um, 
unconsciously replicates that by trying to control her and use her the same way that these men in power use her Mm -hmm. um, is really so sophisticated and um, and so much more intimate um, because of that. Yeah. And I love it's a happy accident, sort of. He was developing Prince of the City for over a year and then Lumet wound up getting it. And one of the stories he got was about that cop being uh, wired and the wire Uh and the battery burning him. And it wound up in this movie and it kind of makes that whole character um, Mm -hmm. and makes us uh, aware what he's doing. He's trying to right a past wrong uh, through this poor woman. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And that so that last scream, which is just oh, so gosh. haunting and what's done with it, to me is the perfect example of viewing it through the man's point of view and the woman's point of view. So if you if you're watching this movie with, you know, a guy who's been identifying with the John Travolta character, they're saying, oh, he's put it in there so he can always remember this tragic, awful mistake that he's made. And, you know, and if you're viewing it through her point of view, it's like she's been exploited her whole life. And here's the final, even in death, her dying scream is being used in a movie, you know, or if a really Catholic, bad movie. If you're, or if you're Catholic, you think he's punishing himself. Yeah, <laughs> that's what <laughs> part of it is. Yeah, right, that's so. exactly right. And that's what I think. But I feel like it's. So they're it's, all in there. Yeah. He, and he, that's the genius of the ending. I think you're right. And yeah. this excerpt. Also included in the book, Brian De Palma Interviews, comes from an article written by Jean Vallely in 1980 entitled Brian De Palma, The New Hitchcock or Just Another Ripoff. Nevertheless, De Palma feels he is going through a particularly creative period, the result of what he calls a major breakthrough. I discovered the pencil. It took me days to type a page by the time I corrected all the mistakes. But once he began writing on big yellow pads, I wrote like a lunatic. I can write 10 pages in a day. I wrote Dress to Kill very quickly and then started Personal Effects, my next project. Then I had two other ideas that I started writing and another idea started haunting me. Once I get a good idea, it doesn't let go. I walk around doing my normal activities, but I'm in a daze because I'm trying to figure out how to get this character over to that point so we can meet this other character. In the last couple of months, I've had a bunch of ideas. I almost wish it would slow down a bit. It's getting a little crazy waking up at four in the morning and trying to get it all down. But on the other hand, it's wonderful because there are times when you just don't have any ideas. This is better. Directors in their 40s, I just turned 40, move into high gear. They get to use all they've learned. But the tragedy of the profession is that so many directors make their best pictures in their 30s, and because of the corrosive aspects of this business, they suddenly go out of control. I would hate to think I made my best picture four years ago. This is a terribly destructive business. When you become successful, you lose your critical peer group. You're off living in a mansion somewhere, surrounded by people who think you are wonderful. This is so dangerous to artistic growth. You know, everyone has an image of himself that, in fact, really isn't true. When you're successful in one area, you tend to say, hey, that's not me. They think I'm a horror film director when I'm really a a poet. Suddenly, I want all my poetry on the screen, so I start shooting scenes with horses running across fields. 
If I had been Truffaut and had made home movies, it would have been infinitely more successful because the critics are used to Truffaut making this sort of movie about his youth, a kind of sweet, personal, sentimental, quirky, ironic, funny film. But they're not used to me doing it. You've got to know what you do well and not be embarrassed by it, even if it brings you great wealth and success. I can tell a story in visual images probably better than anybody. My weakness is that I've never done a great character story. I should probably direct somebody else's material if I'm going to grow as a director. I can direct actors well, but I'm usually so involved in the visual storytelling that the slow rising and falling of the characters' relationships just doesn't interest me. But it should. I should do it. See, the problem in this business is that in order to grow, you have to make lots of pictures and fail a lot of times. We're going through a wild budget syndrome at the moment where a young director will make a big score on some small budget picture and then whatever he says and does is right. The problem with this is that your failures won't be half million dollar ones, but 30 million dollar ones. And those can be devastating. The critics start reviewing your budgets and the distribution companies who have lost a lot of money become reluctant to let you experiment. I had the advantage of being able to fail many times on minuscule budgets early in my career, and I wasn't wiped out. With most directors, 10 to 1, their first couple of pictures were disasters. Right now, if I wanted to make a story about a porpoise and Benji, I probably could get it financed. And that, of course, would be my undoing. Because when it failed, I would be in terrible, terrible trouble. You had pointed out, too, how we're, these all start with um, movies within movies. Um, and and this, you know, returns to the movie. at the, And then Body Devil, you know, then begins with it and, and has a different ending for its couple. Um, uh, it's a very different kind of movie, but they're a similar kind of couple in some ways. Um uh, you you know the sort of amateur detective using a woman as bait, but it it turns out much differently. <laughs> yes, yes, definitely. Yeah, definitely. it's cyclical in a totally different way. So take and a it man on... weakness that he's trying to get past. You know, yes, yes. yes. yeah. And we're talking again, just like we were talking on blowout and how you guys alluded to it earlier when it comes to body double. You know, this one, the male protagonist is just kind of there. He's not really that important. It, it's all about the woman in this movie. Melanie Griffith is amazing in it. I had seen this, I know, in the 90s. And I think I, I think it was around the time I saw Snake Eyes. And then I went back and I'm like, oh, that's right. It's the same guy who made Mission Impossible and these. And I think I saw it then, but I hadn't watched it for whatever reason. I got a 4K copy of it like digitally a few years ago. And so it looks amazing. I would have loved to have seen it with you ladies on the big screen because that sounded fabulous. But how long have you loved Body Double? And I'd love to hear your thoughts. I think I knew the Frankie Goes to Hollywood, you know, video before I'd seen the yes. movie and then saw yeah. the movie after it. And I just thought it was, I thought it's just a, just pure escapism and 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 scary too but with a music video stuck in the middle of i mean it has it seems to have everything and that performance by melanie griffith is just amazing i think i'm trying to think of what i saw it you know i don't i I never had seen it on a big screen until i saw it with megan um so it was i saw it on video um at some point 
Um, yeah, I I didn't see it in the theater when it came out. I was too too young. It had a real reputation. I oh yeah, for that video, but it's being sort of borderline porn. Um, yes, that mm-hmm. really was the, and then it like outraged so many. Um, yes. Women, uh, female critics, and and not all of them. I mean, some of them understood it then, um, but uh, it, he was trying. I mean, he was troll. It, you know, what we would now call trolling um, critics uh, with the movie. Uh, famously, I think with the drill sequence, which is really designed to uh, provoke. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, because it's sort of the violence ag- against women in this movie, even though you don't really see anything, the illusion of it, um, in a very Hitchcockian way is makes it feel so much worse. But you have you know, this famously, you have the killer. It makes sense in the plot because he needs to be watched. It needs to be watched. This is a staged scene a la Vertigo where mm-hmm. the main character, Craig Watson's character, Jake, right, is a, um, he's being fooled and duped. And so he needs to, you know, this needs to be such a horrifying scene that he can't take his eyes off of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so and breaking into a safe that illusion yes, yes. yeah yes. and you know it's this you know and it and so you have this uh you know what's the most extreme and visual way to to kill someone but it's this phallic drill it goes right <laughs> between his legs into her and and it, it is sort of uh <laughs> to palma trolling and his best because because it is so much about um you know, the the impotence of Craig Wasson to do anything about it, which the man who's orchestrating this, who is, you know, this sort of vile, toxic male is trying to sort of, uh, you know, tweak, you know, like sort of activate him in this way. So it's very much, it's about embattled masculinity and how dangerous it is. That's literally what the scene is about. Um, and, and I think, uh, I think it's sort of such a mistake to see that as 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 like a celebration. I mean, I would I would suggest some other movies to critics who think that that this is a movie that celebrates violence to women because we've all seen plenty of those, and this just never feels that way at all to me. Um, I think the women in it are so sympathetic, um, and. You know, and and the I, strongest characters are they're so much stronger. I mean, I think impotent is the perfect way to describe that character, you know, um, just in every way, just unable to act, unable to act, just tied in, you know, and we I mean, we see him in the first and last scene in a in a coffin, just unable to move, you know, unable to act. And Melanie Griffiths in Holly Body is the <clears throat> sort of the opposite of that, the um, you know, the the self-actualized uh, uh yeah. porn actress right who is comfortable with her body and knows her limitations and her boundaries and and uh um and is such full full visual control too exactly yeah. i think this movie uh the thing that i read about i don't think he was specifically saying this film but he was talking about an entire body of work matt solar sites wrote about De Palma and he was saying, you know, even in films you like, there are certain scenes that might cross a line of taste or that might be something you hate. And so for me, I will say that drill scene goes a bit bit too far. I get what he's doing and I get it. And I get that we don't see certain things, but I will say it's a little much. But I like 
the whole rest of the film. I think it's great. You need the drill. I mean, you need all of that. Yes, because it's supposed to be shocking and impotent and all of that. But I will say it is for me. I thought you were going to say the one that crossed the line for me. And I suspect Allison may agree, which is that um, the camera moves around the kiss, the big kiss. <laughs> oh, the vertigo? Yeah. yeah, yeah. That's it was the one that violated crazy. my taste is the scene. <laughs> I love the scene um, where he is in the tunnel Um, because I think that is so fascinating and it goes back to the impotence idea like she has to pull him out he's all like you know I'm gonna be the rescuer I'm gonna go after this guy and she actually has to do that yeah (laughs) Yeah. coming back to the drill just just briefly um, I think he's um, he's got this great sense of humor as far as just oh, yeah. going so far over the top, which kind of comes back to that opening scene in Body Double where there's that awful slasher movie and they're just, you know, mm. it's just such a parody, you know, of, of um, you know, violence against women on yeah, screen yeah. Or, or that type of thing. It's just, it's so extreme that you just... I mean, you gotta yeah. kind of laugh yeah. a little bit. The, it's the like, humor. yeah, the humor. It's sort of like, I mean, because because in that, if you think about the scene in Blowout, and you, you're thinking this is the actual movie, and you're like, my God, and they're like yes. shooting a woman who's like <laughs> masturbating, and then there's people, then there's have people having sex over here and over here, mm-hmm. and then you see the guy in the mirror, and then he's like going to the, and then there's the woman in the shower, of course, and mm-hmm. you know, it, it's just so cheesy, just like the kind of like the the drill yes. that so insane that you're like okay this this is just beyond (laughs) i think that's exactly it it's telling you how to view it it's by the way it portrays everything else in it it's so the the costume he's wearing the 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 ridiculous like no woman master by the way (laughs) exists as opposed to i mean i guess it's an example of something that once upon a time in Hollywood, the way that some of those women are murdered and they celebrate. Oh my gosh! The way yeah. there's so much pleasure taken in those and phones women. to the face and yes, yeah. and yeah. It's just this sort of slapstick torturing of female yep. character, and I think that the tone of that is isn't the, isn't this hilarious? How this woman's being murdered, and I just like I don't see that in this at all. In this, I think isn't aren't men ridiculous? <laughs> Yeah, it's more <laughs> jokes on the on the person yeah. create yeah. the jokes on the on the viewer. But I, you know, I can understand. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Either I mean, way, I, I get what he's doing and stuff. Yeah. But it's just you know, it goes a little far for me as far as <laughs> yeah. I just don't want to see it personally. I mean, that makes sense. You no, know, but <laughs> I get what he's doing for the rest of the movie because it is. One of the things I loved in his interviews, and he kept talking about, I am a visual stylist. He loves throwing that out there. And he likes saying he wants people to know, like that 360 vertigo kiss. (laughs) He wants people to be aware that they are watching a movie at all times. And you definitely get that. Body Double is, as as you guys both said at the beginning of this, a movie about movies. Mm -hmm. And so I, I do appreciate that. And I think he's having a good deal of fun with it. But Yes, I will say that that scene for me, I mean, I think it goes a little far, but it also it plays on uh, these ideas of what we think we see versus what we see, because I paid very close attention to what we actually are shown. It was interesting um, going back and forth between Pakula and this, because Pakula, uh, when he talked about Clute, he said, I think people think it's more violent than it is. 
He never wanted uh, to show a knife going into flesh. He said, I don't want to, I care about these people so much and about the psychology of the characters. I'm not saying one is right and one is wrong. I mean, they're no, kind of like, I, yeah, yeah. But he said, I don't want to accidentally turn someone on or I don't want to go so far, which he's not responsible for. He's making a movie, but he said, I don't want someone to draw a link between sadism and sexuality and violence again and so his idea again this is just one filmmaker but they were making movies at the same time both involving hookers and sex um and then going to the other direction of well my movies are movies and so i i get both of their styles and it works really well for them but yeah for me this one goes a little far in that scene yes. yeah well he you know he he does talk about i mean he is like style in the extreme and oh he, yeah he talks about how he tries to push it as far as he can without people laughing but but <laughs> people will laugh Allison, oh yeah out of nerves too Yes, they, and and they just it, because it's so um, sometimes yeah. the drama and the music, the Pino Daget, which is so beautiful, but it can be hard. Oh, I love his music. But if you're not used to that style, that mm-hmm. you know extremity of it, it, it can be jarring. And um, and in particular, I mean, I really do think that the choice of Craig Wasson is like I do think he's it's supposed to be bad, you know, like. Yeah. <laughs> You know, that's sort of part of it. He's so hapless. And I do think part of what makes the drill important is the phallic substitute. Oh, it, of course. It's super Freudian, but, but, you know, it's got this like enormous bit, you know, it, it, and it, and he penetrates her with it. And I think he's really making fun of the dudes that like think that this is sexy, you know, like, uh, you know, I do think he actually wants to arouse you with the masturbation scene and then, and then, and then shock you. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Because I, I just think he finds, um, this kind of male male sexual, this sort of hapless, um, pathetic, controlling, dangerous sexuality, quite pathetic. And I, I think it's just such an evisceration of it because the women are the ones, you know, I mean, Melanie Griffith makes everything happen in the movie that's that's yeah. that brings it together. And um and his neuroses, much like Vertigo, but with a different mm-hmm. ending, um, is is what causes all the problems. And it's interesting, it comes after as far as, you know, Blades, um, because he had read in an interview, he talks about like, the scariest thing for women is disfigurement and being cut up. And he said, so in Dress to Kill, that's what part of it was with the razor blade. So it's kind of, it goes back to that. And then uh, this was, of course, you know, he made Scarface, which pushed things to the extreme. It got the X. Um, and I kind of analyzed that movie from the female perspective, which was an interesting way to look at that as well. And then after this, it was, well, if people are going to say my movies have too much sex or too much violence, I'm going to push it. And that's what body double does. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's funny. I, what, I don't I see if, what else thinks, but I would say like the one moment in De Palma where I feel like he goes too far is in Scarface with that famous scene. Um, and, and I think that's because the chainsaw. Yes, a chainsaw. <laughs> yeah. So realistic. They, it shows you how he deals diff- deals differently when they're supposed. You're supposed to understand 
how how far they've gone and there's no mm-hmm. going back from that space but it's so upsetting to me yeah and no one talks about that you know it's violence against a man you know mm-hmm. um we're gonna stop apologizing for De Palma but I, mm-hmm. I that that is I, I feel the same about that scene Jen as you do about this one I just can't mm-hmm. look I can't watch I have to turn <laughs> Yeah. Oh, it is. Yes, it is extreme for sure. Yeah, that whole movie is very extreme. It's not my favorite of his. Um, I know a lot of people just love Scarface. It's um, pushed to I eleven. Find yeah. everything. To, yeah, mm-hmm. I, I find everything a little bit. And I love his excesses. I love them. I love them in Body Double. I love them in Dress to Kill. I this one, I just. You know, I don't know. Maybe it was Al Pacino's performance. <laughs> You know which one I love that doesn't get enough credit, I think, is Carlito's Way. I think that's a great one. Oh, yes. I saw that when it came out. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And he was worried going in because, you know, you have Pacino playing a a Latin gangster again. And, yep, yep, he's Italian. So uh, that was part of it. You know, they weren't allowed to shoot Scarface in um, Florida, Miami, because it was (laughs) ticking people off a little bit. And yes, for sure. I think they had a right to be concerned. Oh yes, uh, yes. I, I, there, I think I find a lot of pleasure in Scarface, but, but. Uh, oh yeah. But I, I definitely like Allison. It's one of the lowest on my list of his movies. It, it, it is broken over the top, and I know it's purposely that way, but. It, it's hard to not view it in the context. So, you know, Pacino couldn't shake off that accent for several movies. <laughs> and, uh, and I, yeah. Sort of like, Can we blame Son of a Woman on that a little bit? We're just going to, we're going yeah. to. Why not? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> or maybe it started with Injustice for All, a little, the, the yelling. Those yeah. three are the ones that the, uh, had a pernicious yeah. structure. <laughs> you need a little bit tighter control <laughs> leash. <laughs> But, what do you yeah. think of his post like mid eighties career? Um, what are some of your thoughts on his other films, favorites? I really enjoyed Snake Eyes a lot. I think um, that one's great. Yeah. Yeah. I thought it was terrific. I really like it. I thought it was like one of those great just I mean, there's just something addictive to me about the best De Palma movies. And that had that kind of effect on me, like that sort of that blowout yeah. or that or that body they double would be a good double feature i'm like at the ed- edge of my seat just wanting yeah. to see what happens next and frightened about what happens next and yeah. guys just exhilarate it's a, all his technical craft at its absolute peak i mean it is a, there's so much to look at in the frame it's so much watching 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 cameras cameras ca- you know yes. and, I I just love that you know I've loved some of his later thrillers of femme fatale and you know I I still love to see I mean I always love to see his movies even if they don't work um yeah I think there's something about I watched Domino I'm not gonna you know no apologies <laughs> yeah no and I think he is is inter- you know I think he you know it always enraged me I think his Mission Impossible is the best Mission Impossible I I, I feel like he he made so many success wildly successful movies and the the fact that he still uh, can struggle for to get to make anything he wants seems outrageous to me because uh i think he's 
still such a vital uh, when you see the documentary just because that's a more recent hearing mm-hmm. talk about it but he's still such a, a vital uh talent and a live mind and he's still so interested in the world and 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 the and the political scene and I just uh I think he's such a uh, such a great uh, one of the greats really yeah, I was glad uh, that Noah Bumbach and Jake Paltrow put that together because it was great. Yeah. And really an original. Like, that's what's so interesting to me that, as you were saying earlier, Megan, that, you know, a lot of people say, oh, he's just you know, emulating Hitchcock. And they, they've always said that. But he, I, you know, I mean, I just keep coming back to Blowout again. That's a De Palma movie. If there ever was one, it's a it's a De Palma's take on it. He's got a very very distinct style that's different than anybody else's, and that is it's it's just very compelling, you know. Mm-hmm. I I do think anyone's fooling themselves if they don't think they are uh, influenced by Hitchcock. I mean, Hitchcock oh, is yeah. a filmmaker. Uh, I think that exists now still. So if there's something really disingenuous in that to be, uh, because it, it any time you do a thriller now, if it has any sort of um, you know neurotic or sexual or sexual sexual neurotic. Uh, yes. You know, you're you're entering that space. Uh, but I think also now you're entering the De Palma space when you do that. I think he left just as strong a mark in that particular band of of um a thriller of sex thrillers. Yes. And I loved what he was saying too about the need for critics to understand how filmmaking works and also film history, because he was pointing out in the early 80s that saying stuff was Hitchcockian was already getting a little much like you're just banding about that term and you can kind of see that people are still doing that like it's a thriller ooh, it's Hitchcockian or it's Lynchian that's another name that gets thrown around all the time actually I was thinking about Lynch when I rewatched Sisters you brought up Freaks which is a really good um, observation you can kind of see well there's definite influence there but also you're thinking about uh, some of the movies Lynch made after that and uh, wondering if Sisters was a big influence. Boy. Yeah. That seems that I hadn't even thought of that, but also they all both have so many female doubles. Uh, yes. So it's, and, and, you know, thinking to Elephant Man, or the, it does feel like there's, yeah. Lynch is always distinctly Lynch, but it's hard to believe he didn't see that movie and also that they are inspired by the same filmmakers so you're sort of seeing it you yeah. know through um you know they came they're around the same age so it's it's uh it makes so much sense but that's yeah. that's fascinating to think and of laura palmer a little bit like the jennifer salt ending that bothers us so much <laughs> a little or or even the ending of blowout you can kind of see like maybe you know yeah that, that did and so much about how women yeah. are um imperiled by this male desire to control that so many lynch movies and mm-hmm. and i think the the dreamlike quality allison that you referenced at the start is something you see in both of them where mm-hmm. uh there's it that feels there's sort of dream always bordering on nightmare at so at any given moment definitely absolutely one of my favorite things I learned this week that I'm sure you guys know I it was new to me was Terrence Malick was inspired to become a filmmaker because 
of Brian De Palma, like touring with greetings. He went on tour for like 10 years talking about independent film. And Malik was in the audience of one of those and said, that's what made him want to direct. And I was like, wow. 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 Well, that's that's why Malik's movies are so much like Bali. (laughs) I know, right? It's just such an obvious influence. Wow, that's amazing. But I, I can see how that spirit of it too, because, you know, De Palma really did come of that indie, you know, the, that, I mean, that, you know, for better, lack of a better term, that Raging Bulls, you know, uh, yeah. writer, Raging Bulls generation and the, the way that they were just going to do it. They were going to make them just going to start making movies. Yeah. Yeah. I talked to Amy Robinson recently and she was actually a PA on Sisters as, uh, as I told both of you guys and she, her job on Sisters was to drive people around, drive Brian De Palma around. And she was terrified and not a good driver. So he wound up driving her around and telling her stories. She had a bit part in the movie and was cut out. She said it was fine, you know, of course. Uh, but she talked so much about her belief that he doesn't get enough credit and that he, he might have kind of started the whole thing. I mean, you know, he launched uh, like Robert De Niro, Jill Clayburgh, like some of these people that were in his films got their start because of De Palma. And I think he sort of gets overlooked or maybe like as a Hitchcock acolyte, essentially, like we're saying, don't write him off like that. But he is a really important figure in this absolutely period. who else could do the untouchables i mean it's not yeah. a movie but that i mean we we all take it for granted now but i do remember when that came out and it no one thought you could do that that you could no. you know, take an old tv show based on this sort of what then even then seemed like this ancient gangster story and and not have it feel like a cartoon or a copy of a cut co- you know to sort of bring it to such vivid life um i watched know. that again recently too and another yeah. movie that really holds up amazing. yeah i watch it all the they, time <laughs> to make blockbusters i mean yeah. that mission impossible um i just think he was always interested more in other things and but yeah. you know um within thank god because i mean i love those both of those movies but i think part of what maybe makes him most like hitchcock is that he's drawing from a lot of his personal fascinations and neuroses and um as with lynch um and i think that's what makes them so personal yeah are there any unsung films uh i know we talked about sisters i was really excited to do that one because i don't think people do talk about it as much but any unsung favorites or ones you want people to be sure to seek out? I would always recommend his earliest ones, like Greetings and Hi. I mean, talk about Discovery, you know, like, uh, but I think they're so, uh, they're so funny and so subversive. And actually, you know, they're, you know, they're very political. They very much come out of the counterculture moment. And they showed them a few years ago at MoMA and it was so wild to see them. And, um, and I think they're just so great and, and do highlight humor, like pointed humor yeah. um, that, and it felt, you know, if the parts of it that feel subversive now, you know, mm-hmm. he has no respect for authority in any way. <laughs> and there's something, they're just so exhilarating. So just cause, uh, I think they're on. I think Criterion has somebody. They're easily easy to get, but I think I say the names of the early movies, Megan. Uh, I didn't... Greetings and Hi Mom are the two. Oh, that oh Hi Mom! Right? Okay, yeah, that I do remember. But yeah, yeah. yeah. how about you, Allison? Are there any that you want to be sure people 
Well, I mean, we already talked about Dress to Kill, and that was the other one that I wanted. Yeah. I mean, that's not unsung. I love that movie. I talked about it on the podcast with Elizabeth Cantwell. I mean, there are some issues in that movie that we we discussed, but right. um, but I love it. Yeah, just viewing it in and of itself as a yes. very terrifying thriller um, and a personal really, one. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It just stands up and again, just beautifully shot and just so it's just such a, a so much paranoia in there and, mm-hmm. and such great performances and you know and the real I, I know there's parts of it that have some problems but that it is a real deconstruction of gender showing gender oh, yeah. performance, yeah. which feels very much something we talk we're talking about now um that ge- that gender can be something that uh at least the culture like perceived gender is just something that people put on uh and it's a performance which is um you that's know, true no- that's a really good point as far as that movie goes yeah absolutely yeah well i want to thank you guys so much for doing this i uh, really appreciate it you'll have to come up with another topic and come back yeah so we'd love Yay. to that was so much fun thank you jen why do you think horror films are so popular today Because the genre is one of the few forms that hasn't been invaded by television. The stations have picked up the situation comedies and the political stories and all the other forms you used to go to the movies to see. But they've avoided the horror and suspense genre because these works lose their scariness when they're broken up by commercials. Also because the networks can't portray graphic violence or things like brutal murders. Even though people like to see lots of action and killings and don't seem to care whether you slice up someone in a horror movie or shoot them in a western or strangle them a la The Godfather. Personally, I think the horror genre is a very filmic form. Certainly, it's the closest thing we have today to pure cinema. And the fact that most horror films are so badly made doesn't mean there isn't a tremendous amount of artistry in this genre. I sometimes feel compelled to work in it just to show what can be done. I want to thank everyone for listening, especially my patrons who support the show and help fund my research, equipment, film rentals, RSS fees, and more for as little as a dollar per month at the Film Intuition Patreon, which is the home base for the show. Other ways you can support the podcast are by sharing, reviewing, and subscribing to Watch with Jen wherever you get your podcasts, and also checking out the cool merch store hosted and created by our talented logo designer, Kate Gabrielle. You can find the merchandise store, including shirts, tote bags, stickers, and more by visiting filmintuition.com and clicking on the shop link. The show's theme music is solo acoustic guitar by Jason Shaw and is available in the free music archive. You can also reach me or interact with Watch With Jen anytime on Twitter, either at Film Intuition or our Watch With Jen account as well. Well, until next time, please take care and happy movie watching. This is Jen Johans at FilmIntuition.com and FilmIntuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch with Jen.